Good evening. Um, tonight's reading is Psalm 130. If you want to follow along um, in the Bibles um, in front of you, it's, it can be found on page 624. So that's Psalm 130. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can stand with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Brilliant. Um, well, do keep that Bible open and let's pray as we start. Lord, um, thank you that you brought each one of us here this evening. I just pray that you would speak to each one of us through your word. Amen. Amen. Um, so if you've been with us over the summer, um, we've been looking at the Psalms of Ascent for a few weeks. And this week, we're at Psalm 130. And the overall theme of all the Psalms of Ascent, broadly, is Israel on a journey ascending to the hill where they would meet with God in the Old Testament. And these Psalms are effectively songs that they would have sung from that journey. And I think if you had to define this psalm as a sentence, there's a lot here. I think something like, cry from the depths, knowing Jesus is full redemption, and wait for the Lord would be a good sentence. And that's effectively our structure for this evening. So cry from the depths, knowing Jesus is full redemption, and wait for the Lord. But why cry from the depths? The psalm opens with that in verse 1. Um, and a few weeks ago, um, you might not be able to make out quite who that is, but I was playing foot golf uh, with Ben, who's the curate here at church. And it was a very frustrating experience for both of us, um, partly because there was no rain, which means there's barely any grass at the minute. And that means that a missed putt on the green, very close to the hole, would often lead to the ball rolling into the depths of a bunker, as you can see from that photo. And that sadly was all too frequent for both of us throughout the game. Or similarly, hands up, I wonder, hands up if you've ever been in a cave. Put your hand up. Quite a lot of us. Keep your hand up if you enjoyed being in that cave. A few, maybe a few hands gone down. Brilliant. How, you can keep, put your hands down. Um, I've been in a few caves of various sizes, and the darkest easily was on a school residential where you couldn't see anything. And I've also been down a mine where the lights were momentarily switched off, which was very disorientating. And I think whatever your opinion on caves are generally, for most people, it seems a very emotional experience in some way to go into the depths of a cave. And then you might have seen this a few weeks ago on the news. There was a story of a 62-year-old man sailing in the Atlantic Ocean, but the boat capsized, and the man remarkably survived and was rescued, and I think he's fine now, after 16 hours. 
And he would have felt very much in the depths, literally, for most of that time. And in the psalm, the writer seems to be in the depths as well. We don't know who wrote the psalm, but whoever they were, they decided to write it in sections. And you can see that how they've written that in the church Bibles. So there's sort of like a verse 1 and 2 section, then a gap, verse 3 and 4, and so on. And it seems they're in a really dark place to start with, aren't they? Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord, in verse 1. We know where the psalmist is, seemingly from the depths. And they seem to be really concerned as well. There's a real urgency to God to hear their plea. Look at verse 2. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. And that word attentive is only found in one other book in the Bible, which is in Nehemiah, which is broadly a book where God's people really turn around and turn back to God and worship him. And that desperation in that sort of opening two verses really continues. And we find that why there's all this concern, because they're really turning to God, similar to the context in Nehemiah. Verse 3. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? And that key emotion, which is the part of the whole psalm, is the psalmist's guilt. And if you think about it, guilt isn't a massively common theme in the psalms. It's not so much a psalm that's much more common. It would be something like, I'm feeling overwhelmed by wicked people. It's not like that, this psalm, is it? It's a mess up on the psalmist's part. That's why the psalmist is in the depths. It's because of this realization in verse 3. The psalmist is effectively asking the question of another psalm. Psalm 24, verse 3, you don't need to turn there. But it says, who may stand in his, i.e. God's, holy place? The psalmist has realized the weight of sin, that if there was a book of records kept, who could stand before God? when everyone has sinned. It's like having a massive database or filing cabinet at school where reports of every student are kept, maybe in the head teacher's office or somewhere where no student can get there. And maybe when you were at school, you shuddered at the thought of knowing that your behavior record was there. But this, this is quite a few levels up from that. This is serious. The God who knows everything about everyone, everything we've ever done, and is so powerful that he doesn't need a filing cabinet to remember it all. The psalmist knows the weight of that. But who could stand before God? Ultimately, it's no one. Because no one is holy before God. And we feel that as well, don't we? If we got maybe on AV to put up a record of our sin and put that up on the TV screens and then have that for every single one of us in the building, I expect the TVs probably wouldn't last very long because you'd want to throw a rock at it to make sure that nobody can see that. We really feel the weight of the psalmist feeling here, don't we? It's very relatable. But you might be thinking, well, what's happening But thankfully, the psalm doesn't end at this moment in verse 3, does it? Because verse 4, that second half of the pair of verses, is the promise of forgiveness. Look down with me. But with you, there is forgiveness, 
so that we can, with reverence, serve you. The psalmist has realized that even though they're in the depths, there is a way forward, which is so good. They know that God can forgive, so with reverence, they can serve God. And God's forgiveness is a completely transforming work. It's a complete pulling out from the depths completely. And Isaiah 40, verse 31, famously puts it so well, that those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. And they will walk and not be faint. So God's forgiveness is there, which is really good after this sort of, this cry, this plea from the first three verses. And then look at the second half of verse four, so that we with reverence can serve you. The psalmist has come from the depths. They know forgiveness is found in God. And then that outworking of it at the end of verse four, it's like them saying, what am I going to do about it? What's my response? I'm going to serve God. They've remembered they're not alone in their situation, both with the sin issue being unique to only them because it affects everyone. And they've also remembered that God can forgive them. And so what's their response? They're turning to God and putting their hope in God's words. Look at verse five. In his words, I put my hope. They've done a complete U-turn because they've gone from crying from the depths, from seemingly having nothing, from having no hope, and turning to God instead. I wonder just briefly, what about our cries as well? Is our first thought in times of suffering or when we're feeling distant from God to cry out to him? It's often quite easy to neglect prayer or meeting with God's people when we're feeling down, when times are difficult. But this psalm is a really brilliant model. Because look at verse 1 again. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. So let's make that our priority as well. So the psalmist has cried from the depths. But we can know that Jesus is full redemption, which is our second point this evening. That Jesus is full redemption. I wonder if you've ever read a book series as it's been written, where as the books haven't, you haven't got the full series of books as you're reading them, so you really don't know what's happening next in the story. And maybe you read the Harry Potter series or another book series as the books were being written and came out, and you were literally left in suspense as to what would happen next in the plot, because the full set of books hasn't been released. And that's unwittingly kind of what's happened with Psalm 130, because the psalmist is unaware at the time they've written the psalm that Jesus is going to come. Because of knowing the reality of verse 4, they know with God there is forgiveness, and then they can get to verse 7 and verse 8, with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. And whilst the psalmist knows that, they can write it now as they're writing the psalm, they don't know fully at this point how that will be achieved because they haven't been able to read that full book series. But there is a double act in verse 7. We've got the forgiveness, which we've already seen, and the love. It's God's unchanging love for his people. And God's love is unlike our love. 
which, to quote Hosea 6, is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears, and, to quote the Colin Buchanan song, is all going to fade away. But God's love is unlike that. It's unfailing. It's unchanging. And it's ultimately God's love that gives us Jesus, who will fully fulfill, verse 7, that full redemption. It's that saving work from the penalty of sin. Verse 8, he will redeem Israel from all their sins. God's found that ultimate ransom price. It's in his son. It's in Jesus. Jesus' death pays once for all that penalty of sin and allows God's people to walk free. And I think this short extract from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which is a story of a journey of a character um, in their Christian life, I think this really brings this home further. Up this way, therefore, did burdens Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus until he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross. And so I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from his back and began to tumble. And that's something to really rejoice in, isn't it? As Christians, we have that joy of knowing that full context. We have the joy of knowing God's unfailing love, of gaining that full redemption at the work of the cross. Is that something that we remember all the time? Is that something, it's so good, isn't it? But how often do we actually thank God for it? I know I don't really do that very often, but it's something I need to do more. Or maybe you're here tonight and you're still thinking things through, which is really good. There's loads of people doing that here at the minute. But know that Jesus is full redemption. Through the cross, he's redeemed Israel from all their sins. But more than that, he's redeemed the sins of the world. So we can come as the new Israel, having that full book series. And ultimately, you can know that by coming to the cross and putting your hope, like in verse 7, putting your hope in the Lord. So knowing we can cry from the depths, knowing Jesus is full redemption, it means that we can wait for the Lord. It means we can wait for the Lord. Our third and final point this evening. But it might seem a little bit strange because why wait effectively for God? We normally think about having to wait for other people um, and depending on how punctual or otherwise that person is really affects our enjoyment, doesn't it? But that's the psalmist's response. Look in verse 5 and verse 6 again. It's there twice. I wait for the Lord at the start of each verse, verse 5 and verse 6. It's definitely what the psalmist is planning to do. They seem quite sure about it, don't they? And it confirms that notion at the end of verse 4, when we're thinking about they want to serve God, and it's almost like they want to serve God. Therefore, verse 5, I will wait for the Lord. And we get that repeat, and then we get another repeat, which you might have noticed in verse 6, about waiting for the morning to come. And when I was little, I was taken on the longest day of the year, which is June the 21st in this country, to see the sunrise with my dad. And we took breakfast in Tupperware, I think it must have been on a Saturday, 
it was all pre-done, and so we got up at four, and then we got to where we were going to see the sun. We sat down, and it was a cloudy sunrise. So effectively, I got up at 4 a.m. to eat breakfast out of a Tupperware on a bench. But maybe you've been a lot more successful than that. Maybe you've been onto the downs or the beach or somewhere along the coast around here. And when you go, knowing that sunrise is coming, you know that the sunrise is definitely coming. Despite the early start, despite the cold, you know eventually you will see it, won't you? And it's a bit like that with that image of the watchman because they're desperately waiting for the morning, because when it's the morning, they'll be off shift. They're almost desperate to get away from that position whilst it's the first bit of sunrise, aren't they? But the psalmist waits for the Lord even more than the watchman. And why? It's because they know that the Lord's faithfulness is even more as sure as the sunrise coming up. You might still think, well, why wait for God? I think there's three very short things that this psalm brings out particularly. They're all really short. So waiting for the Lord is putting our hope in God. Waiting for the Lord is wanting to serve him. And waiting for the Lord is good because the Lord brings salvation. So waiting for the Lord for us means putting our hope in God. It means we can put our hope in the Lord truly as the new Israel in verse 7. Through Jesus' death, we're welcomed as God's people. We have that full perspective that the psalmist doesn't have here. So we should hear that call of verse 7 ultimately and put our hope in the Lord like the psalmist does because they know that only God can forgive and they gladly put their hope in God. So how much more encouraging for us today, having that full picture of the Bible, knowing that Jesus' work is fully paid for us, that we can confidently put our hope in God as well. And then secondly, waiting for the Lord also means we can serve God as we follow him by being devoted to him like the psalmist wants to be in verse 4. And it's thinking about what? in what our lives are like, how do we spend our time? Is that prioritizing God's way? That The psalmist knows that because of God's forgiveness, it means they want to serve him. And by waiting for the Lord, we can listen to him and we can live our lives and see what God wants us to be doing. And maybe this week, this might be something for us all to think about. As it's the summer, you might have a little bit more time anyway. So maybe ask yourself this question. How am I going to serve God specifically in the next week? How am I going to serve God specifically in the next week? And then finally, waiting on God is important as well, because ultimately it's God who gives us our salvation. And notice, I wonder if uh, when Wendy read it, you notice how the psalm is completely structured throughout about the Lord. So, for example, verse 4, with you, i.e. the Lord, there is forgiveness. Verse 5 and verse 6, I wait for the Lord. In the Lord's, i.e. God's words, I put my hope. Verse 7, with the Lord is unfailing love. With the Lord is full redemption. And verse 8, he, i.e. the Lord, will redeem Israel. 
He will redeem us from all our sins. It's nothing that we do that saves us. It's the Lord's work. So we really need to wait for him, don't we? And by doing that, we can ultimately sing this whole psalm completely. We can bring our cries to God like the psalmist does. Remember at the start in verses 1, 2, and verse 3, we can confess, as we've done earlier in the service, of how we've fallen short of God's glory. And then like the psalmist in verse 3 and verse 4, we can claim forgiveness, but we can ultimately do that through the cross. And that means we can patiently wait on the promises of God's words, knowing that we have that complete confidence in Jesus giving us that full redemption. So let's pray. And I'm going to read the psalm out again, but use that as a prayer for us as we finish. Out of the depths we cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear our voice. Let your ears be attentive to our cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in your words I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen waits for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with the Lord is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Amen.